Shalom. We are so glad you're joining us on this episode of Our Hope. We created this podcast as a resource for followers of Yeshua, where they can learn more about Israel, the Bible, and the Jewish community. Together, we discuss Messianic apologetics, dive into Scripture, and hear stories from Jewish believers in Jesus. If you've enjoyed our podcast series, please consider supporting us at ourhopepodcast.com support. You could also help us by sharing this podcast on social media, talking about it with your friends and family, or by writing a review on Apple Podcasts. We are so grateful for you, and we hope this episode of Our Hope is both enlightening and encouraging. Welcome to Our Hope, a production of Chosen People Ministries. On this podcast, you will hear inspiring testimonies, learn about messianic apologetics, and discover God's plan for Israel and you. Wherever you're listening, we hope you lean in, listen closely, and be blessed. One thing Christians and the Jewish community have in common is our reverence and respect for God's Word. Scripture informs not only our beliefs about God, but also how we live and how we treat others. Without the Bible, we would be lost. While the Hebrew Scriptures have been around since long before the birth of Jesus, the complete Berit Hadashah, or New Testament, can only be dated back to 367 AD. Compared to history, the New Testament is relatively new. And yet, the gospel message has made a huge impact across the world, paving the way for both the Old and the New Testament to be read in many countries. But is the New Testament credible and consistent with the Old Testament? Do these two parts of the Bible work together or contradict each other? These are tough questions, so we have invited back Dr. Daryl Bach, Senior Research Professor of New Testament Studies at Dallas Theological Seminary, to help us understand if we can trust the New Testament. I now introduce the host of Our Hope Podcast, Abe Vazquez. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Our Hope. Really excited uh, for this episode. I've just been excited all season, just tackling these questions, these really tough questions mm. that we've heard for many, many years, 127 years. I haven't heard them for 127 <laughs> years, but um, <laughs> many others throughout the ministry have. And today's question that we are tackling is can we trust the New Testament? It's very controversial for a Jewish person to read the New Testament or talk about the New Testament. Um, but for many, once they do, it's it, they're, they're blown away. And so I'm, I'm just really excited to dive into this question and have uh, an expert in New Testament studies, yeah. <laughs> Dr. Darrell Bach. Uh, Dr. Bach, welcome to Our Hope, and thank you for joining us once again. Well, it's great to be with you, and it's good to be a veteran of foreign wars, so it's great to be with you. <laughs> Dr. Fox, speaking of the Bible, we want to know, 
What is the first Bible verse you memorized? I actually don't remember what the first Bible verse I memorized <laughs> is, uh, uh, although I know the Bible verse I knew before I became a believer that was from the New Testament, and that was, judge not lest you be judged. I actually joke that that is the life verse of every unbeliever, is that yeah. they, they, they know that verse. Of course, they don't read on to see what the rest of the verse has to say. Uh, because they're trying to get you off their back, but still, uh, at least that's how I used it. Uh, but, um, you know, there were early Bible verses that certainly were important. Um, John 3.16 would certainly be in that mm -hmm. mix, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, uh, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Apparently, I memorized it in the King James Version, because the only time <laughs> I use whosoever is when I read John 3.16. Uh, and uh, there are other passages that certainly were important, but that uh, that's one that certainly leaps to mind. So you you are a senior research professor of New Testament studies. Why what drew you to the New Testament? Why why is that your I guess the word is specialty? Well, obviously, as someone who's a believer, and I come out of a Jewish background, but someone who's a believer. Uh, who wants to understand what Jesus is about and uh, what he did in his ministry, what he taught, etc. Um, the Gospels are certainly most important. I specialize, even though I'm a New Testament department, I specialize in the Gospels and Acts. That's really where my focus has been most of uh, my professional career. And so understanding who Jesus is, how he connects to uh, the teaching of the Hebrew Scriptures, to the Tanakh is important. And, uh, and so that's been really a focus of mine from the very beginning. I, my initial dissertation was on the use of the, we say the use of the Old Testament and the New, that kind of, that, that tells you it from a Christian angle. It's really the use of the Hebrew scriptures in the new era. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah. and so that's, that's part of what we're, we're trying to do. And, and of course, that was the Hebrew scripture was the scripture of Jesus and the disciples. It was nothing else. And so, um, so that's important to appreciate about the historical background of where the New Testament comes from. It actually yeah. is a reflection on the Tanakh. Well, and, and just a follow-up to that, is referring to the Old Testament as the Old Testament, New Testament as the New Testament, problematic for, I, I guess, for Christians and Jewish people? Yes, it can be, because, I mean, obviously, it, it assumes a Christian canonical frame, so that's important. So oftentimes, when I'm teaching, uh, I'll just talk about the Hebrew Scripture, and when I'm referring to the Tanakh, and then I will refer, uh, oftentimes, I'll do this less often, because usually I just go ahead and call it the New Testament, but mm -hmm. uh, yeah. it would be the Christian Scripture would be the way to, dis to distinguish that which is particularly Christian in the canon, from that which is shared with Judaism. Because remember, Christians uh, also embrace the Tanakh. They embrace right. the Old Testament. Uh, and so, um, so that's a part of their scripture as well. So before we even ask if the New Testament is a valid part of the scriptural canon, we must define scripture itself. So can you tell us what is scripture and how is it different from any other type of text? That's great, because the key question is, how is the Bible, however you view it as composed, different from every other book? Yeah. Uh, and so um, scripture is that which believing communities 
take as being God-breathed, as being specially inspired is the word, although inspiration actually isn't the reflection of what inspiration involves. Inspiration involves the expiration of the thoughts of God. Hmm. And so, um, so you're thinking about how God is uh, over, under, around, and through what the human author is writing, and what the result is, is something that is true and is worthy of uh, a unique place in terms of its truthfulness in the faith tradition that we're talking about. So whether we're talking about uh, the Jewish Tanakh, or whether we're talking about the Christian scripture, or whether we're talking about the whole of those two, when someone says something is scripture, they are regarding that text as special and unique and usually bearing a unique authority as a result, because it mm-hmm. is seen as being as originating and expressing ultimately uh, the mind of God. So, Dr. Bach, how was the Tanakh, the Old Testament scriptures put together? Well, it was put together over time uh, and over a long period of time. Uh, You know, the roots of the Torah go back to Moses. And then, you know, you have all the way up, depending on how you do the order. um, Malachi, usually in the English order, is is the last book of the Tanakh. Um, You know, that takes you several centuries before the time of Christ. Uh, and so it's put together gradually, and it emerged, for lack of a better description. And even in the time of the first century, there's sometimes debate about when did the Tanakh get finalized? Oh, we have all the books. We know that by the time of the first century, when Jesus shows up, that most of the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, is formed and formulated, the Hebrew Scripture. Uh, Josephus writes about uh, all the books that we um, now recognize as a part of of the Hebrew scripture in his writing when he identifies their contents. Mm -hmm. We also know from rabbinic tradition that some of the books were discussed, uh, Song of Songs, Esther, there are different books that were discussed as to whether they really are a part. So some of it, some of the edges were uncertain, but I like to tell people Mm -hmm. when you read the Christian scripture and what they refer to back in the Hebrew scripture, your key books are, are the portions of the Pentateuch, the Psalms, Isaiah, you know, it's books like that, books that were not up for discussion at all in the first century. Um, And eventually uh, what became the Old Testament emerged and by the first century was basically uh, existed and recognized as its own distinct collection of uh, sacred Jewish writings, if I can say it that way, Mm -hmm. um, that the church then also absorbed. Now, some people who know a little bit about Scripture uh, and the history of Scripture will ask, well, what about um, books like Sirach and Mm -hmm. other books like that, which are sometimes called the Apocrypha, at least in the Mm -hmm. Protestant tradition, or what are called the Deuterocanonicals in Catholic tradition. And these are books that also are Jewish writings that are written in what is sometimes called the intertestamental period. Other people call it the Second Temple period, um, the Second Temple period. Temple period is a uh, is a less theologically uh, less theologically freighted language. If you say intertestamental, obviously you're talking about the period between the two testaments. Um, right. Anyway, those writings are Jewish writings, but they were never recognized by official Judaism as part of the Old Testament, as part of the Hebrew Scripture. They were highly regarded, widely used, but not necessarily regarded as Scripture. 
uh, and they only came to be regarded as scripture in the Christian tradition in the midst of the Reformation dispute. Most people don't know this. Hmm. Um, it was a result of disputes between Protestants and Catholics about certain Catholic doctrines in which the Catholic Church needed the support of certain texts in order to establish those doctrines that allowed the Deuterocanonicals to come in because they discussed some of the teachings of the Catholic Church that Protestants did not hold to. There's a whole, there's two different structures in the Christian community for how the authority of scripture works in relationship to the development of theology. Catholic Church has a thing called the Magisterium, which allows doctrine to develop through the College of Cardinals, et cetera, which Protestants do not have. And yeah. so this allowed the Catholics to say, we recognize these books as a part of our scripture. They incorporated them in so they could defend some of these doctrines that otherwise wouldn't have been addressed. Um, and thus the Catholic, um, the Catholic Hebrew scripture canon, if I can say it that way, although that's not entirely accurate when you get into some of these books, um, is bigger than both the Jewish canon and the Protestant canon of the Old Testament. Wow. Um, and, and so that produces a difference and in some cases some confusion about what constitutes scripture. Wow. <laughs> yeah, wow is right. <laughs> yeah, put that in your pipe and smoke it. I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you just talked us through the process of the Tanakh. Um, I'm scared to ask <laughs> about the New Testament. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what was the process for putting together the New Testament canon? And, and, and it was a little bit different. So um, how was that compiled? Yeah. And again, it's a process of recognition. What happened was, is that as books were produced and as they circulated, certain books bubbled to the surface as being particularly valuable to the church. And it took some time for the church to name and recognize those books. And in fact, one of the things that inspired the listing, I think you alluded to the fact that the New Testament dates can be dated back to 367, which is technically correct. That's the first time we get the list of 27 New Testament books that uh, uh, that constitute uh, the books that constitute the New Testament. Um, anyway, um, uh, what happened is, is that these books emerged and were used, and as they were used more and more, they became to be recognized part of Scripture. Now, the fact is that four Gospels were pretty rec well recognized by the end of the second century. We have remarks from Irenaeus, who speaks about the four Gospels. Of course, there would be four Gospels. There are four directions to the wind, you know, north, south, mm. east, and west. So uh, that's the figure that he used. So the four Gospels were very early being recognized. The Pauline correct collection was very early in being recognized. Mm. Um, what got discussed were books like Second and Third John, Second uh, Peter and Jude, uh, Revelation was a, a little slow to be recognized simply because it was so different than everything else in the New Testament. Right. And so, uh, so these books were gradually recognized as they came to the surface, and they were recognized for their um, for their apostolic roots. Didn't have to be written by an apostle, but certainly had to be in connection with the apostolic community. Um, the breadth of their circulation and the perception of their value really led to. Uh, what it was that produced them. And as I started to suggest and then got off track, part of what forced the church to name these books was the injection of other books that were claiming to be scripture that were not a reflection of Orthodox Christian faith. Mm -hmm. And so at some point, the church had to say, 
these are the books we recognize and these are the books we do not recognize. Mm. Um, and that process just took some time to, to play itself out. So the New Testament was actually functioning uh, before it's being named in the 27 books that Athanasius is responsible for that list in 367. Um, in an Easter letter, he, he named the books. Uh, and, uh, and so they were actually functioning before they were, they were called out and named, if you will. Um, and, uh, and, and the New Testament's been, that's been what we call the canon. Now that's spelled C-A-N-O-N. I have to remind people it's not C-A-N-N-O-N. We're not going to shoot anybody with this Bible. Okay. (laughs) But, uh, um, but it's, it's the canon and, uh, and canon means standard. This is the standard of our faith. So, Dr. Bach, uh, how many people were involved in compiling this list? And also, since there are, as you mentioned, there are several books that people said were scripture that actually were not considered inspired. How do we know that all the books and letters in the New Testament that are official are divinely inspired? And follow up to that, was God sitting with publishers to like, put this together or yeah i mean i i I was joking with you earlier when we were before we recorded that uh you know god created a book of the month club and it only ran (laughs) for four months when it came to jesus so um uh yeah i I mean i mean there are people involved all along the way and what what you're are what you're contending for is these texts circulated among were circulated among the churches as valuable texts and came to be embraced by a wide variety of of the community uh, came to be seen as functional by the wide variety of the community. And then the injection of these other texts that were making other sorts of claims, in some cases with other kinds of theology, were not recognized by, by the church globally. And one of the one of the categories that I didn't mention earlier, but I should now is what we might call geographic distribution. These were books that were circulating across the wide swath of what the church had become as opposed to being regionally used books or something like that. Um, It's an interesting phenomenon because in the early second century, if you read the early second century writings of Christians, it's pretty clear, it seems pretty clear that, that in most communities at that time, they might have known one or two gospels. They might have known a handful of the Pauline letters. They might have known uh, one of the others, what were called the Catholic letters, which are the non-Paulines. and, and so their, their, the size of their Bible was limited. I, I tease people that the idea of a Bible church in the first few centuries, in one sense, wouldn't have existed carrying your bound Bible to church because people didn't handle the Bible that way. They heard the Bible in the services that they were in, just as in Judaism, they would have heard the Bible in the synagogues that they met in and that kind of thing, as opposed right. to carrying you know a bound Bible around them with in their back pocket or whatever, or like today on your iPhone, obviously they didn't have <laughs> iPhones then. So it's the circulation. So when you ask how many people are involved in this, I mean, it's myriads of people in one sense. Now the um, the commissions that ended up uh, reinforcing this list of 27 met ver- at various points involving uh, many church leaders at given points. I don't have specific numbers, but these would have been um, church councils that would have been uh, made up of the global makeup of the church at the time. And they were reinforcing, yeah, this is our list. These are the texts that we recognize to be a reflection of our faith. 
And by naming them, of course, they're excluding a lot of other works that are circulating. We'll be right back. Shalom, I'm Mitch Glazer, president of Chosen People Ministries. Is it possible for Jewish people to believe in Jesus when there's such a sad history of Christian anti-Semitism that has shaped Jewish attitudes towards the gospel? Well, I know there's hope because I'm Jewish and I believe in Jesus. And I would love to offer a few suggestions for reaching Jewish people personally with the love of God through Messiah. First, keep your message personal. You're representing a person, not a religion. Second, be loving, patient, and kind, even when they object. And then finally, and most importantly, pray. Touching the heart of your Jewish friend with the good news of Messiah will also touch the very heart of God. And you can learn more by visiting Chosen People Ministries at chosenpeople.com slash radio. During these difficult times, we know how hard it is to hold on to hope. And we want you to know that Chosen People Ministries is here for you. If you have any prayer requests, our prayer team is standing by to receive them. You can submit your request at chosenpeople.com forward slash pray. Again, that's chosenpeople.com forward slash pray. So we've laid the, the foundation. We talked about the formation of both the Old and the New Testament, um, or the Tanakh and the uh, the New Testament. And now my question is, we, we see, and I mentioned this earlier, many Jewish people reject the New Testament as valid scripture. So why, why is that? Why, why do they reject the New Testament as a valid scripture? Well, of course, the central message of the New Testament is that Jesus is at the center of the program of God. Mm. And so a Jewish person, generally speaking, is told that um, Jesus is not the center of the program of God. They might, Jesus might be characterized in a variety of ways. Uh, I think across Judaism, you might get a variety of ways he's described, but he's certainly not viewed as, the, as Messiah, as Mashiach, or as the center of the program of God, or certainly not as the Son of God by a lot of Orthodox Jews. And because that's a central message of these texts, they're, they're going to be challenged and rejected. Now, of course, the claim of those texts, which is interesting, is this is precisely who Jesus is, and this is precisely who Jesus is on the basis of the Hebrew Scripture and the promises of the program of God on the basis of the Hebrew Scripture. So you've got kind of a, that's kind of what I think is a fundamental disagreement. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and, and so it leads laterally to the rejection of the New Testament. But if someone picks up a, the Christian Scripture, if I can say it that way, and begins to read it, um, they will often, uh, part of what surprises a Jewish person who reads the New Testament is how Old Testamenty it is, you know, <laughs> uh, um, you know, that it's referring back to different parts of the Old Testament. It's, it's referring to the prophets. It's referring to the Psalter. 
you know, it's talking about these connections, connecting them to the covenant promises of God. Mm -hmm. And all that seems to be such a surprise, given what they've heard about Jesus and what they've, what, what's been said about Jesus in many of their communities. And so it creates, um, let's just say it creates a moment of pause and reflection oftentimes as a result. So Dr. Bach, as you were talking, I I thought about how the Jewish context of the New Testament has kind of been lost over the years, even in the way I hear um, people talk about Jesus today. And we know that the Torah is an important part of Judaism. And even though it is included in the Christian Bible, uh, some Jewish people perceive the New Testament almost as a rebuttal against the Torah. And we're going to explore this topic a little more in a future episode. But briefly, how would you explain that the New Testament does not cancel or contradict, but rather complements both the Torah and the prophetic writings? Yeah, and, and I'm going to answer this in a way that, that might engender some discussion, uh, because I think it depends on how um, how the Torah in particular is read or, or the Tanakh as a whole. Um if you read the Tanakh and the Torah as a whole as a series of stipulations, okay, uh, so, you know, the tradition is there are 613 Mosaic commandments coming out of the Torah. Um, then the appearance of it canceling at least some of that seems to be transparent. Christians, you know, they don't seek to go to a temple. They don't go through the sacrificial system. If we had a temple, they probably wouldn't necessarily. They might, but they might not feel obligation to go through the sacrificial system. Jesus is viewed as the singular atonement for sin, that kind of thing. So that look that has the feel of a cancellation, if I can say it that way. But the other strand of what's going on in the Tanakh is this idea of promise, the covenant structure of the promise of God. I'm going to bless the world through Abraham's seed. I'm going to give a king in a kingship that's going to last forever. I'm going to do a work inside of people as opposed to outside of people. So I've just gone through the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant really, really briefly. I mean, that's 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 less than a Reader's Digest version. That's a Twitter version. And <laughs> right. so, um, uh, so in the midst of, of thinking about how that promise strand works, what the Christian scriptures are claiming is, is that Jesus is that seed, Jesus is that king, and Jesus, by dying for sin and cleansing us, providing an atonement, and sending God's spirit to indwell us, fulfills the new covenant. Hmm. And so that promise strand is certainly not canceled or contradicted. It's actually fulfilled in what Jesus has done, and that fulfillment impacts the way in which the 613 stipulations of the, of the Tanakh are to be read and handled. And so, um, so it kind of depends on where the emphasis is in what you're looking at as you're reading the Old Testament in terms of that explanation. But ultimately, if Jesus is who he claims to be and who the prophets show him to be, um, who the Psalter claims him to be, et cetera, and he is the answer to that promise, then the implications for the stipulations come with the territory. And, uh, and with that, then you don't get a contradiction between the two Testaments. The second Testament, if I can say it that way, completes what was offered in the first Testament and represents its realization and fulfillment. 
Does the New Testament introduce any beliefs or theological concepts which are not in the Old Testament? Okay, now again, I'm going to give you a nuanced answer just like I did on the previous one. The answer mm -hmm. is yes and no, okay? Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. On the one hand, I mean, the idea of, uh, of a Trinitarian monotheism, okay, is not something that explicitly comes out of the Hebrew Scriptures. There are hints of it, of, of it existing, but it isn't an explicit teaching uh, of, of the Old Testament on its own terms. It gets teased out because of the revelation of Jesus's relationship to the Father and the role of the Spirit in the program of God. And so we see it more explicitly produced in the New Testament. In fact, the word Trinity itself isn't even in the New Testament. It's a way of summarizing the various relationships that are clearly depicted in the New Testament and, and explaining how those work. Mm. And so certainly the idea of a Trinitarian monotheism, and I'm using that phrase on purpose because both elements of it are important, yeah. um, um, is, is something the New Testament is very explicit about that you can only see hinted at in the Old Testament. That's my answer, yes and no. There, there are yeah. There are things that connect to what is going on in the Hebrew Scriptures and that draw out what might be implied in the Hebrew Scriptures, but the clarity of it is made transparent in the New Testament and what the New Testament teaches. And of course, it's important to remember that for Christians, Jesus is the Word of God. There is a revelation outside of Scripture that He Himself is, and as such, that's important because who He is and because of who he is, we have the New Testament scripture and what they are. And those two things are not unconnected to one another. So the New Testament's kind of like a grand reveal. Exactly almost. right. So, yeah, it's a so commentary like on the, the Old Testament. Jesus. <laughs> right. The Old Testament yeah. was like the marketing plan. And, exactly. And the teasers and all of that. And then the New Testament is like, okay, here it is. Yeah, that'll work. I'll, I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> an interesting way to look at it, Abe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a marketing guy. You gotta put it in marketing terms. Put it in marketing terms. That'll make it work. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the Old Testament is definitely, I mean, I wouldn't say it's just a setup, but it definitely sets up the New Testament. Right. And people had a lot of expectations. And we need to remember that the New Testament actually takes us back to the Old Testament. I mean, it. Oh, the way I like to say it is, if you read Revelation, um, you're actually all the way back in Genesis 1 because, because the entire gospel story is a story of restoration, a restoration of that which was lost. Right. And, right. and Jesus yeah. represents the regaining of that. I often tell people in Christian circles, I think we don't do this very well, that you talk about the gospel and the good news, you don't start in Genesis 3, you actually start in Genesis 1 mm -hmm. because it is the way God made us and who he made us to be that the gospel seeks to answer. We're, God is trying to reclaim something that is about the way he originally made us and the way life was originally designed to be. You don't find that in Genesis 3. You find that in Genesis 1. You have the problem because of Genesis 3 but and, and the fall and the introduction of sin. But what the gospel is designed to take us back to is to the way God made us to begin with. Mm -hmm. So we're always in Genesis 1 when we're talking about the gospel which means we're also in Revelation 22. So that's a, you know, so that's that's the fun part of it.
You're back to the beginning. You're back to the future. I don't know how to talk about it. So, Dr. Bach, are there any resources you would recommend for explaining how the New Testament is valid scripture? Well, I mean, there are um, there are introductions to the New Testament that talk about the history of the canon. We're, we're really talking about, uh, it, there are really three elements to this question. We've only really hit one of them. Um, one is how the, how the New Testament itself and how the Bible as a whole come, has come together. Okay. The second is... How do we know that the text that was written is the text that was written? In other words, do we have what's the chain of transmission that allows us to think that the Bibles that we have in the 20th century reflect what was actually written in those books in the beginning? So that's what's technically technically the discipline's called text criticism, and you're dealing with what the text criticism of the Bible, you know, the transmission chain. Uh, are the manuscripts, what do you do with the differences between the manuscripts? How do you know it's this wording and not that wording? That's a second dimension of the question. And the third dimension of the question is, all right, now that we know that that was what was written, how do we know that what that was written is actually true? Okay, can I believe what's there? Okay, that's actually a third level of this conversation. When you ask, can I trust the New Testament? You're actually asking three questions at once. How do we know that I have the right Bible, the right books? Right. How do I know mm-hmm. I have the right text? How do I know that what the text says is true? Mm-hmm. Okay. And so we've really, you're, this, this podcast, which is our hope, I don't want to leave our hope incomplete, but our mm-hmm. hope is uh, the first step is knowing we've got the right books. Okay. And that's what you've been asking me about. And, uh, you know, do, do the books that constitute the scripture, are they the right ones? Okay, to which the answer is yes. Um, and then there are two more questions to follow. How do we know the contents of those books are were the real original contents? And then the second, and then the second question behind that, which is actually question number three, because I'm trying to confuse your listener, um, <laughs> is uh, is how do we know that what that actually says is actually the case? Okay, so that's those are the three steps. So when I ask the question, can I trust the New Testament? I have to ask myself, well, what sense are you asking that question? How's that for confusing you? Well, then I have a very different question for you. Okay. Um, can we trust the New Testament? <laughs> the answer is we have the books we ought to have. Okay. There's a whole nother podcast that ought to be dedicated to we have the texts that we ought to have. Yeah. And there's a whole nother series of, of podcasts that probably involve how can we know that what we have is actually what was intended? Because now you're into questions like, does God, if God's going to speak, he's got to exist, okay? Um, if the story of the Bible is actually a history, then the things said in it, like the miracles, do they really exist? Um, and then you're off into all the details about how the texts hang together, et cetera. You could probably do at least one podcast on each one of those, maybe more. So anyway... I'm trying to make sure you guys have a job for the future. Job security is awesome. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, it, it, but before all those podcasts come. <laughs> right. The answer question is yes. 
Yeah. <laughs> great. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, Dr. Bach, we just want to say thank you again for joining us for this episode. This was very refreshing to hear about. We don't hear a lot about the history of the canon, and your expertise was very valuable for this episode. I'm sorry? We don't want people to know. Oh. <laughs> so as a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, we know that you certainly trust that the New Testament is not only valid, but also divinely inspired. How did you personally come to the conclusion that you can believe the New Testament? That's an interesting question. And really um, a couple of elements to the answer. One was just how I came to faith. Um, my faith journey was um, over five years. I met. I, I live in. I live in Dallas. I lived in Houston when I was growing up, which means I'm mm -hmm. deep in the South, which means I'm surrounded by Baptists. Uh, right. and, and so I lived in a world surrounded by Baptists, all of whom wanted to see me come to know Jesus. And so uh, they would consistently share with me, etc. I mean, one of my closest friends in the world went to a Young Life camp, came to the Lord. Uh, and came back wanting to make sure I could share in, in his joy and wanting me to come to the Lord. And he said, you need Jesus. And he said it three different ways. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. He could say, that's about all. That's about all. He just said, I needed Jesus. And I thought he was crazy. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so that was the start of a journey. And then I just eventually paid attention to the fact God was at work, that there were, yeah. that between the way people were living that was different and what they were saying and uh, the way in which everywhere I turned, I seemed to be running into this, you need to get yourself right with God kind of question. Um, I saw God at work completely outside the scripture, but certainly in the lives of people. And that opened me up to thinking through, well, maybe they know something that I don't about life. Um, and then, uh, and then in doing my own work in relationship to the scripture, you know, someone handed me a Bible in the midst of this process, probably the most brilliant thing that, that, that anyone did. They handed me the Bible and they said, why don't you just read the, you have a lot of opinions about the Bible. Why don't you just read the Bible for yourself and ask this one wow. question, one question. And that is, um, um, how important is Jesus to the story? Okay, they handed me a New Testament. And they, and they also gave me a warning because they knew my personality. They said, now you're going to meet a lot of names in the first chapter of Matthew. Just skip that part. Don't worry about those names, okay? Just get into the story. Uh, probably a good idea. And, uh, and so I read it, and, and I was reading through the New Testament. I thought Jesus was a religious gripe. You know, he would, if you put a Hall of Fame together, a religious Hall of Fame, Jesus would be in there. You put Moses in there. Put Elijah in there, you know, Isaiah in there, a lot of people in that, in that every year there's a new induction class. I mean, just, <laughs> you know, uh, just put a lot of people in the religious hall of fame. He was a religious great. So he gave great religious advice, but he isn't the only voice and he certainly isn't a singular voice. Uh, the more and more I read in the New Testament, I, the one thing that became transparent to me, you know, the other thing they said to me is, we think you can read and understand this. So, um, uh, became transparent to me is that Jesus wasn't just being put alongside all these other folks. You know, he occupied an extremely unique position. I mean, he was saying things like, this is the passage that really turned me uh, in, in some ways, you know, 
the person who builds, who listens to what I say and doesn't do it is the person who's built his house on the sand, the person who listens and hears mm-hmm. build his house on the rock. And, um, and I'm sitting here going, Jesus is kind of in the middle of that. You, you kind of, you know, he doesn't, he, he is in the middle of everything that's going on. And, and then when you see how Jesus himself handles the scriptures, um, the way he trusts them, etc., that brought an approach to a regard for the Bible. And then to realize that the New Testament, I, I would know nothing about Jesus and about what he did and said if we, we didn't have the New Testament. Um, uh, that, that's, that's kind of the path that put me on a conclusion, you can believe the Bible. And then the way it talks about life, I just found to be um, compelling and authentic uh, and thus worthy of embrace. Dr. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time, your expertise, um, and your passion behind this topic. Um, it, it really comes out when you, when you speak about it. So just thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure as always, and we wish you all the best there at Chosen People Ministries. And uh, I, I, my prayer for anyone who's listened to this is that they would uh, they can take both the Tanakh and the New Testament, however you call it, Christian Scripture, uh, Barish Hadashah, take take your pick. They can take it seriously. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. We can trust that all scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, is not only true, but also powerful. There is no other book like the Bible out there. And as we have learned today, the Old Testament and the New Testament both work together to tell God's story of redemption for Israel and for all humanity. Now that you have heard how we can trust the New Testament, you might be wondering how we should view the New Testament in light of the Torah. On next week's episode, we are inviting a first-time guest to help us answer the question, is Christianity anti-Torah? This is an important question that we have heard before, so stay tuned to hear the response. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Our Hope, featuring Dr. Daryl Bach from Dallas Theological Seminary. This episode was produced and written by Nicole Vaca and edited by Grace Sweet. This episode was also made thanks to AboutMessiah.com, Dr. Mitch Glazer, and Kyron Bautista. I'm Abe Vasquez. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Our Hope. If you like our show and want to know more, check out OurHopePodcast.com or ChosenPeople.com. You can also support our podcast by giving today at OurHopePodcast.com support. See you next time.